Steven Jackson in the backfield for the first time in the preseason. A little bit of a play fake. Bradford has time, as he did last week. He will load up, and he will throw deep, and that is Gibson, and he will go the distance. A touchdown on the first play of the game for Brandon Gibson. And welcome to episode number 37 of the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. I'm your host. I'm here with my co-host, Don Russ. How are you doing today, Don? Awesome. It is August 23rd, 2011, here in beautiful Buffalo, New York. A little bit rattled after earlier in the day. Yeah, the, the whole house earthquake. was shaking yeah. as there was a little bit of an earthquake and I, I was here, I was at the studio by myself, I got here a little bit before Don, and I felt it, and I, I, I said, was the house just shaking? I, you know, I said it to myself, then I started shaking again, and I thought I might be going crazy, but yeah, turned out it was an earthquake, so who would have thought? But uh, we're, only, we're only, finally, we're only a couple of weeks away from the NFL players playing games for, for real. Right. And we're one even one week less than that from having the college boys start playing games for real. And we have a very football-centric show here on episode 37. We have interviews with Don Banks from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. We have an interview with Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. Stuart's nice enough to join us again. He was just on a few weeks ago. But since that time, the Sports Illustrated college football preview came out. And I had read it from cover to cover and had some questions for him. And some stuff uh, came up that we didn't get a chance to cover last time that I'd like to again. So Stuart will join us later in the show. And also, uh, a first-timer, Andrew Lawrence from Sports Illustrated, the magazine. He's He's been to quite a few camps the last few weeks. And we get a chance to talk to Andrew about a few NFL teams that we haven't talked much about yet. And that's Jacksonville, Houston, and Tennessee, and Indianapolis, the AFC South. He he did a did a basically a little trip through the teams down there and had firsthand knowledge of all the teams. So we kind of have an interesting interview with Andrew Lawrence about that. Also in this episode, we are going to pick our over unders that we like best for the NFL team totals. Uh, it's kind of a staple of the Mike and the Mad Dog show. They always used to do this, and people always, I know I did, as a big fan of the Mike and the Mad Dog show, will look forward to hearing which over-unders the guys would pick. So Don and I are going to do that. We're also going to give our first annual Sportscasters Top 10, NCAA Football Top 10. I figure if the AP has a poll and the coaches have a poll, we might as have a po- well have a poll, too, and I'm not sure if the BCS is going to recognize it as part of their formula or not, but <laughs> we're going to do it anyway. And also, we're going to give you the top five non-conference games in the first five weeks of the season, and there's some good ones. Also this week, we are going to have episode number 38. So episode 37 is the one you're listening to now. And although most of the time we only do one podcast a week, this week we're actually doing three. So I just told you about episode number 37 and what to expect. Episode 38 has a fantastic, I just did it, 
interview with Michael Fabiano from the NFL Network talking fantasy football and also an interview with Ken Fangs, whose website is a subsidiary of Big Lead Sports called Fangs Bites. And we're going to talk a little bit about the sports media with him, kind of like what we've done in the past with Richard Deitch and Uncle Neil Best. So that's episode number 38. And also, we have uh, Athlete Spotlight number four with Anthony Day, who is a friend of the podcast and has been on a few times. And we're going to get in-depth and talk with him about hockey as he gets ready to enter Yale College in New Haven, New York as a Division One athlete. But we have all that to do this week, so we better get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> This is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Alright, my first point of interest this week. Todd Haley, who's already kind of like a popular coach, younger guy, 41 years old, apparently was spotted at the Lil Wayne concert at the uh, Sprint Center on Monday night. Uh, 41-year-old head coach promised to attend the rapper's show after the Chiefs used one of his songs as part of uh, a video for their pregame warm-up during last season. Haley recalls saying, quote, if he comes to town and I get an opportunity to give him a copy of it and thank him, I'll do it. Haley called it afterwards a great show, and Lil Wayne tweeted at him in Chiefs cornerback Brandon Flowers, props to Tech 9 and the Kansas City Chiefs coach Haley, and hash 24B. I'm not sure what that is, maybe... Maybe it's probably Flowers. It's probably his number, 24. Gotcha. Uh, several players said they appreciated Haley's taste in music, though they weren't told that Haley also admits listening to Barbra Streisand and Bobby Vinton. So do you think, you know how we've been known to travel the country for various Pearl Jam concerts? Yes. Do you think Coach Haley will now travel the country for various Little Wayne concerts? I do not. No, you think no, one no. Time? I th- I think he probably will just coach the Chiefs. One time shot. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think he's going to go to more rap concerts now? Like if Snoop Dogg's tour rolls in, do you think he's going to say, "Man, that little Wayne show ruled"? I got to go check out <laughs> Snoop. Yeah, maybe if they're in the uh, pregame warm-up tape for the team, then maybe he'll go do it again. We'll see how their season turns out. Maybe it'll be a bad bad luck thing or good luck thing. Well, because your first piece of business was Kansas City Chiefs. Related, I'm going to bump one of mine up to first and talk a little bit about the somewhat bizarre story that kind of leaked slowly out of Chiefs camps, although no one has denied it. And it surrounds veteran running back Thomas Jones, who is very respected in the Chiefs locker room. Obviously, he's been in the league a long time. And reportedly, their first-round pick, who they selected 20 sixth in the first round of the NFL draft from Pitt where Larry Fitzgerald made his name as a wide receiver. This kid, he's from Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. His name is Jonathan Baldwin. And he had the reputation coming into the league, Don, as a bit of a diva. And because of that, he slipped down to 26. Right. He probably would have been selected a little, a little bit, bit earlier. A little bit earlier. Yeah. But there was some questions about his character. Well, apparently, as he went into camp, 
he came in with a bit of an attitude and was irritating some of the veterans to the point that Thomas Jones knocked him the fuck out. (laughs) Yeah, I did hear that. Now, we don't swear much on the show, but when a veteran NFL player punches a guy to the point that there was rumors he had a broken wrist, luckily for the Chiefs, it just ended up being a broken finger. It deserves a little bit of color. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I love this story because I can just see this rich kid who hasn't done jack anything yet right strolling into camp remember last year there was a story that des bryant wouldn't carry the pads right like the orientation or the right. hazing type uh, things yeah right and, you know hazing has its place if it's done in a joking kind of funny fun manner right i don't want anyone to get you know a ball sack in the mouth or anything like that <laughs> You know, but it's it's something, you know, sometimes you need to earn your place as a rookie. And clearly, Jonathan Baldwin wasn't doing that. And Thomas Jones put him in his place. And I absolutely love that. Thomas Jones has jumped from probably in the 1,000s in terms of my all-time favorite NFL players into, like, the top 250. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. My second, uh, speaking of players who have a bit of a history in college, Terrell Pryor... Selected in the third round of the supplemental draft. He was the only player selected by, of all teams, surprise, surprise, the Raiders after he ran well and quickly on a, a not a track. On a, right, he, run on, he ran, he on, ran field on the field. Turf, and he, ran a, he ran a 4-4-1, but one scout had timed it at a 4-3-6. So as a Bills fan, I'm not one to put down other teams, but I just I don't know what the Raiders are doing. I mean, they don't have a quarterback, admittedly. So maybe they think this is going to be their guy. I don't see it. Uh, maybe they can convert him into a tight end or something, but you don't give up a third round. Third round pick just seems awfully high for a project. You know what this reminded me of? As soon as I heard it and I heard third round pick, I thought of Maurice Claret because when the Broncos picked him, he was also a third round pick, and he didn't make it out of training camp. And it's very, very, very rare for a third round pick to get cut Right. You know, and not even make the practice squad like Claret did. And now here's Pryor, a guy who's obviously a freak athletically. Right. There's no doubt about that. And they've described him that way, but they've also used words like horrendous accuracy to describe. I mean, that's not something you want to hear out of any quarter. You don't want to hear that about out of your punter that he has horrendous accuracy. And here's the thing about being an unbelievable athlete. You can get away with that in high school and college. Right. But... Everyone in the NFL is at least a good athlete. So being a great athlete isn't enough. You have to be a great athlete and at least a good football player. If he's not even a good – if he's not even a okay football player, it's not going to be enough. Right, and on top of giving up their third-round pick – and granted, their quarterbacks, to be clear, are Jason Campbell, Kyle Bowler, and Trent Edwards. So – they're clearly yuck, yuck, and yuck. Right, right. But now that they picked him up, they are without picks in the second, third, and, and fourth. fourth round in next year's draft. Yep. For a team that can use all the help they can get, they have they're they're going to be short on youth. And uh, just come next year. Just to clarify, because some people might be confused. I know I was initially, and I kind of 
this has kind of helped me learn a little bit about the supplemental draft. Yeah, I didn't know about it. Because you said two things that could that probably have people saying, what? He was a third-round pick and the only player drafted? Well, this is the way it works. Right. Is there, it's basically a normal waivers-type system, but you have to put in what you th- will give up for the player. So... In the next year's draft. In so, the next year's draft. So there was other teams who may have put in claims for Terrell Pryor, but they may have done it at sixth round, right. seventh round, something like that. Now, I heard for sure, I think it was Clayton who said this, that there was a team who put a fourth round claim in. The Raiders couldn't do that because they already don't have the fourth right. round. So this was really the only way they could go. They wouldn't have got him with fifth round. And they didn't have fourth, so. And you know, I compared him to the Bills, and maybe the Bills need to take more risks like this. But still, the third round seems so early. That's that's only ninety players. I mean, they're gonna their third round pick is gonna be valuable. That could be the fourth or fifth pick in the third round. And you know, we've had not to name drop, but Jason Lacanafora, Peter King, right, Adam Schefter. I guarantee none of those guys think this is a good idea. Right? No, absolutely not. I mean, in the seventh round, if you want to take a flyer on a project guy and see what he can do at QB or try to turn him into a tight end or whatever, safety. I don't I don't know where you want to put him. He's Like you said, he's a freak of nature athletically. But third round isn't a place to pick project players. Although the Jags took uh, I can't Matt Jones, Matt Jones in, in the, the first, first round. round. Yeah, You know, but here's another thing you haven't mentioned is he has to sit out five games this year. He's right. No, yeah, I didn't even. So he comes with baggage on top of it. Right. You know, it's not, not the best reputation in terms of being – a good, productive human being. So all around, I just don't like it. If anything, the Bills are way, way, way too conservative, and they don't make any splashes. The Raiders are the total opposite. They they never look at the draft board apparently, and they just they look at just the speed numbers apparently. And yeah, and you know when they when they took Hayward Bay, Hayward Bay, I had a Crabtree. I thought, wow, but they also took him. Hakeem Nix was in that draft, right? Who looks like he's going to be a superstar. Mike Wallace was in that draft. Yeah. So, I mean, they... Definitely a head-scratching move. All right. My second thing is three words. Roy Williams stinks. I don't know if anyone (laughs) got the chance to watch... Which one? Chicago Bears wide receiver, Roy Roy Williams, stinks. He has stunk since Matt Millen famously drafted him. The year after he had drafted Charles Rogers, Charles right? Rogers, yeah. and the year before he would eventually draft Mike Williams. Mike Williams, yeah. So this guy has stunk. Now, to be fair, he started off looking like he'd be a pretty good player. Yeah, broke his collarbone, came back, started off looking like he had healed and would still be a good player, and broke his collarbone again. Right. So he has had two pretty tough injuries with broken collarbones. I know those don't feel good. <laughs> but ever since then, he's been nothing but... I mean, look at what Dallas gave up to get him. And they were already willing to give up on him. Right. And now here he is in Chicago. And last night, albeit preseason, he dropped not one, but two third down catches that would have extended drives and didn't. And if he's going to get come into the regular season and he's going to drop balls like that, He's going to hurt the Bears' offense, not help it. 
And yeah, I they guess, are, they already didn't have a great. Their offense wasn't great last year. Cutler had one of his, I mean, maybe his worst year as a pro, and they're going to need all the help they can get from guys like Cutler. They lost Greg Olson. Or yep, Greg Olson. They lost Greg right, Olson. Yeah. So, I mean, they're going to need all the help they can get from guys like Williams. And this is a team that somehow, I'm still scratching my head, made it to the NFC Championship game last year. That's amazing. You know, and wide receiver and running back, rough. Yep. My uh, last point this week, the new kickoff rule, it seemingly is night and day compared to the old one. I have a few stats here. Um, of the 278 kickoffs in the 2011 preseason from the 35-yard line, 103 haven't been returned, making the touchback percentage 37%. Last year, the touchback percent was 16%. The year before, 154 14.2%, 12.1%, 12.5%. So it's kind of steadily rose. And they have moved. This is the second time yep. they've moved it. But even so, I mean, players are probably getting slightly more athletic, whatever. Um, the NFL is doing it in order to cut down on injuries. They claim that the kickoff is where most injuries occur. An interesting I found, an interesting tweet I read over the weekend was one from Peter King. And he said the average kickoff landing, and I don't have this stat. I'm not sure where he got it, but I'm not going to call Peter King out on his stats. He said the average kickoff landing for all 2010 kicks was the 5.5-yard line. So he says it stands to reason that in 2011, the average kickoff landing spot would be the 0.5-yard line. But for whatever reason, that doesn't seem to be the case. He said a majority of the kicks are still going to be returned. Um, but it's, it's like 60-40 right now, and it, it just doesn't seem like that should be the case. And it, some guys are killing it through the end zone. And, yeah, like you said about how the average landing point, I was going to mention... You know, a lot of these kicks are being returned, but they're also being of the ones that are being returned. They're being returned from five, five yards, yards deep, deep yeah. and they're not getting anywhere because, you know, it's almost like I think a lot of these younger guys who are trying to earn a spot, they're probably told by the coach, you know, don't worry if you get tackled at the fifteen. Go ahead and give right, it a see shot. What you can do, yeah. you know, see if you can make a play. But I've seen most of the kickoffs that I've seen returned have been returned from the end zone. You know, and I think some of the some of I could see. Some of the Devin Hester type players getting very frustrated with this and maybe taking some chances that in an NFL regular season game you'd much rather weren't taken. Yeah, and I remember reading somewhere about, and I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, they were talking about a rule. This might have been college football, but they were talking about having no kickoffs at all, just eliminating the play. And. I don't know. At this point, is that basically what they've done anyway? I've heard... Uh, well, they've eliminated it 40% of the time. Yeah. This is essentially what they've done. I've heard uh, someone ask if they thought there would be more onside kicks because of this. And, I mean, that's an interesting thing. Maybe there will. Maybe teams uh, take that chance now because you, you're already going to start at about, what, it's at the 35, you got to kick it 10 yards. So, worst-case scenario... The other team starting with it at about the 45, 50-yard line. So maybe you'll see more of that. And I guess that's an exciting play. But if that's the result, that seems like a more dangerous play than the regular kickoffs to begin with. But I'm not sure that the NFL's actually published stats or anything about the injuries. So it's kind of questionable whether or not or how, how legit that is or how much more players are getting hurt on kickoffs than on a regular play. And you know what? I, I see where the NFL's head was at because we in Buffalo – Live through the Kevin Everett right, tragedy right. on a kickoff where he suffered his neck injury. And I know that 
I know that they're right when they say it's a very, very dangerous play. And one other adjustment to the rule that's been kind of not mentioned as much is now the defenders only have a five-yard head start. Right. Uh, they can't, you know, go have a 15-yard running start or right. a five. So maybe when the competition committee meets again during the offseason, they'll move it back to the 30 but keep the five-yard yeah, maybe, they over, maybe they over maybe they over a little bit. Maybe that will do the the same. Yeah, or even like you said, put it back where it was and give them no head start. Make them run like a like a like a sprinter. Make them start from a dead start. Uh, but it does take some of the excitement out of it, especially for guys like Devin Hester, who did have a long return in the preseason, but still didn't score. So I mean, maybe if he has a little more room, I don't know. I don't think there's been a kick return for a touchdown yet in the. Preseason. Not that I can remember. All right, so my number three thing is the opposite of my number two thing, and it's something I hate to admit, but anyone who's being honest has to agree that Colt McCoy really does look like he's going to be a quality NFL quarterback. Yeah. He's having a fantastic preseason. I know it's the preseason, but it's not like he's running against the threes or the twos like he did last year. He's running the first-team offense there. And he got this bizarre help from Favre, yeah. which I think we talked about last maybe last week. week. And I just I'm I watch him play, which I I got the chance to do last week, and I think they got it. They got it with this guy. Yeah, he looks like he looks he looks the part. He's and commanding the team. He's uh, progressing at the right pace. He's doing it with no help, really. I mean, who's who's his best receiver to throw to? Mohamed Masakwa. Yeah, I mean, who is he? I mean, I'm. I know of him because of fantasy football, but aside from a week or two that he had a nice week last year, the average fan probably has no idea who Mohamed Masakwai is. Um, I guess they have – no, they. I was going to say they're tight end, but I can't remember even who that is. Well, they have Peyton Hillis in the backfield who they ran the heck out of last year. Right. So I'm sure that the team is very excited to see that their quarterback has progressed to the point in the West Coast offense – where they'll probably be able to take a little bit of the load off of Peyton Hillis. And it's on the other podcast, but in the interview I did with Michael Fabiano, he said that he had interviewed Hillis, and Hillis admitted to him that he was out of gas the last few weeks last year. So I think this works for the Browns. And the Browns weren't that far off last year. They they beat the Saints in New Orleans. They had some good wins. I think they might have finished in the 6-10 and 10 to 7-9 and nine range. I'm looking right now. This could be one of those teams that goes from out of the playoffs to in the playoffs. Yeah, they were 5-11. and 11. They're 5-11. and 11. Okay, that's not great. But they weren't the worst 5-11 and 11 team I've ever seen. They're a little bit better than that. Yeah, I, I think I agree they're going to be a better team. Their division's brutal. Uh, they're still going to have to be, or face Pittsburgh and face Baltimore twice. So that's kind of two teams they're going to have to leapfrog before they can start thinking playoffs. But they're definitely a team moving – in the right direction and that the quarterback's the thing unless you're a team like uh the ravens that one year that dilfer was the quarterback which is far more rare than it is common uh you're not going to win without a good quarterback and you know we're we're here in buffalo and they're still looking for they're a guy to still Kelly, looking replace to Kelly. replace jim kelly and in denver they really haven't had much success replacing john elway and in Miami, they haven't had much success no, not at replacing all. Dan Marino. You know, so sometimes 
if you're an NFL team, you know, it's the except Aaron Rodgers replacing Brett Favre is more the exception to the rule than the rule. Right. You know, I'm petrified of the day that Drew Brees is no longer the quarterback of the Saints because I suffered through 10 or 12 years of not having anyone to turn to a quarterback. Well, come on, you had Aaron outside Brooks. of the one or two seasons that Aaron Brooks, who did have talent, he just right. didn't have the mental capabilities to, to do the job at the level that he had to do it. But I don't know. Good for good for Cleveland and good for Colt McCoy. As much as I dislike Texas, I always <laughs> I always respected Colt McCoy. Yeah, I heard a lot He's of a good, respectable kid who plays hard and you know a lot of teams, including Buffalo, are gonna regret the fact that they didn't take a chance on him in the draft. And he went in like what, the third round? Third round. Yeah. Well past well past the point that Jimmy Clausen had been selected. Right. You know, who was the other kind of big name that had questionable draft status going into last season. And a lot of, uh, I, I said the same thing last week, but a lot of the people's knocks on McCoy were very similar to Breeze's. And look at Breeze's career now. Yeah, he could be the next He could be the next Breeze, especially the offense that the Browns want to run, this West Coast kind of short passes and things like that. It's very similar to what the Saints do in New Orleans with Breeze. And sure, McCoy's going to get a couple of his bat- balls batted down at the line of scrimmage because he's short, but right. big deal. So that happens two or three, three times a game. Big deal. All right, so that's it for three things. This is where we're going to go from here. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Don Banks. It's a shorter interview than we're used to having here on the, pod- on the Sportscasters, but you still enjoy it. We'll come back. We'll do a real quick book club update. The book club update is really a Tim Layden update. I got an interesting update to the story that I mentioned last week. Okay. And then we're going to have Stuart Mandel. Then we're going to do the NCAA football thing and then Andrew Lawrence. So we'll kind of keep you, keep you on track as we go through a, a pretty long show here today. But uh, we're going to take a break and come right back with Don Banks. <laughs> Our next guest is from Madison, Wisconsin, and is a graduate of the University of South Florida. Professionally, he has spent time covering the Minnesota Vikings for both the St. Paul Pioneer Press and the Minnesota Star Tribune. He also spent time on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers beat for the St. Petersburg Times. In 2000, he began work at Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer. He has appeared in two movies as a sports writer. 2006's Invincible, and 2007's The Game Plan. He is a giant Boston Red Sox fan and kind enough to join us today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Don Banks. How are you doing today, Don? I'm great, and thanks for reading my resume. It's always <laughs> nice to hear it. Yeah, it's certainly impressive. So, very excited to have you today, and I know that you've been really busy the last few weeks kind of traveling the country and going to various NFL training camps, and I guess... The best, the best way to kind of ask this question generally is what impressed you the most as you were traveling the country, seeing teams like the Bears and the Chiefs and the Packers? Is there anything that really uh, sticks out as really impressing you? Well, I guess I would say uh, the depth of the Green Bay Packers roster was probably the most impressive thing. And it's, uh, I guess it's pretty commonplace to look at the defending Super Bowl champs the next year and say, that the pieces remain in place, but we know reality has uh, has often gone in a different direction. 
with the so-called Super Bowl post Super Bowl syndrome. But I really think this this may be the exception uh, of of a year because I think the Packers, in getting players like Jermichael Finley back that, at tight end and Ryan Grant at running back. They take you know what would look to be a pretty loaded uh, young offense and, and make it even that much more potent. And when I started my camp tour, I started in Green Bay, and I still haven't seen a team that impresses me as much as Mike McCarthy's uh, defending Super Bowl champs. Does Ryan Grant look like he is ready to be a every down back? I know you caught them a little bit early in camp, so maybe he wasn't quite as healthy as he might be today, but... James Starks really finished the season very well there. Is he going to push Ryan Grant, or is this Ryan Grant's job? Well, I think it's I think it's Grant's job per se, but I think everybody in the NFL these days sees the wisdom of having two or even three running backs that are kind of almost interchangeable. And uh, I think Grant gives you more um, across the board versatility and can do more things. But I think Starks really opened a lot of eyes with what he was able to accomplish down the stretch for Green Bay last year. He's very much in their plans, and uh, I think he'll get more than his share of carries as well. I just I think this offense has a comfort zone with Ryan Grant, and Aaron Rodgers certainly believes in him and, and feels like this team is, is um, considerably better with Finley and Grant back in the lineup. On your tour, you also got to see a couple of other teams from the NFC North, the Minnesota Vikings and the Chicago Bears. The Chicago Bears obviously are the team that you would think have the best chance to compete with the Packers solely based on the fact that they also played in the NFC Championship game last year. How is, uh, how is Jay Cutler? And, you know, the last season ended so strangely for him, standing on the sidelines and then taking this unbelievable beating on Twitter, is he kind of over that, and is he ready to to lead this team back to at least as close as possible to where they were last season? Well, I talked to Mike Martz, the offensive coordinator in Chicago, about that that very topic, and you know, Jay Cutler's a different guy. Uh, Mike Martz told me that he doesn't let stuff really kind of build up and get into his head as far as what anyone outside of the locker room thinks about him. We'll see. I think this is a story. The Cutler's going to have to deal with for a while. Um, one better source I thought got it right, and he said, look, it was a national story. Everybody saw it. Everybody has an opinion about it. And until he does something to kind of make us think of something else when we think of Jay Cutler, it's probably going to be lingering a little bit. It's probably going to be in the air. And I think that's true. I think when Cutler does something else on the football field, uh, to to make us talk about something other than how the NFC title game ended for him is when it will probably start to be a non-story. We got to watch the Bears last night, and I say we as kind of a nation as they played on Monday Night Football, and it seems like their receivers had a hell of a time catching the ball. Is that something that they have to worry about? I, I, I kind of wonder about the Bears in terms of offensive line and wide receiver, those kind of stick out as weaknesses. Are they going to be strong enough at those two positions? And obviously wide receiver was the most glaring thing last night as Roy Williams and Devin Hester both kind of drop drive-killing balls. Yeah, I, th- I think those are legitimate concerns. Um, I, I, I think Roy Williams has a lot to prove. Um, again, I talked to Martz, who, who had him in Detroit, and, and really Roy Williams had his – his biggest NFL season went to the Pro Bowl, I believe, in 2007. 
uh, or 2006 with Mike Martz in Detroit, and he said, look, he's going to play the X receiver. That's the Torrey Holt position uh, from the Rams offense back in the greatest show on turf days. He's going to catch 80, 85 balls. He's going to get 1,300 yards. He's going to make a bunch of big plays. He won't, however, unless he can really catch the football better than we saw Monday night against the New York Giants. Uh, he obviously killed the first two drives um, that Chicago had on third down when Cutler looked for him. And I thought Kellen Davis, the tight end, who's taken over for Greg Olson, he dropped the key pass as well. So it is a question mark. Um, they, the Bears have numbers. I don't know if they have the consistency at the receiver position that they need to match up with Green Bay in that division. And I really think the offensive line continues to be a work in progress. Um, I thought Mike Tice, the Bears' offensive line coach, did a great job last year taking um, chicken blank and turning it into chicken salad. <laughs> but I don't know if you really want to go that route year in and year out. And uh, while it was encouraging to see Chicago's offensive line turn in a pretty good performance against the Giants, um, it still feels like they're, they're a unit that's coming together little by little. You... Are you surprised that the Bears aren't trying to use Johnny Knox a little bit? It seems like last year he was uh, an emerging guy, and it seems like he's kind of been downplayed a little bit in this offseason, and I didn't see him playing as much with the ones last night as I thought he might. Is there? Am I missing something? Is there something specifically they don't like about Knox, or was it maybe just a circumstance that they were trying to get some other guys some reps and he'll kind of keep developing as he has the last few years? Well, I think Chicago still still likes him, and I think he definitely has a role. But I agree with you that in going out and getting a, a Roy Williams and a Sam Hurd, it's almost like those are the new toys, and Mike Martz is determined to try to find out how best to use them. And right now I think it means Johnny Knox is getting a little bit overlooked. Um, he's been one of their most reliable playmakers the last two years, so I think when the whistle blows on, on uh, week one of the, of the season, I think he'll be there and he'll be making his share of plays. But I agree with you. I think they're starting to try to integrate other players at, at, at his expense right now. And I think, uh, I think that'd be a mistake because I think he's one of the guys that consistently helped move the change the last couple of years. The obvious question I have to ask you about the Minnesota Vikings is it centers around number five, Donovan McNabb. Is he ready to put what happened in Washington last year behind him and have sort of a resurgence in his career? Or is what we saw in Washington basically what he's capable of now? And do you think maybe that Adrian Peterson is just going to become his best friend and they'll rely on Adrian a little bit more than even they have in the past? I'm skeptical about whether we'll ever see the Donovan McNabb that we saw in Philadelphia um, at that level. Uh, I think he's going to have a better year in Minnesota than he did in Washington, but obviously that's not saying a lot. I don't see the Vikings contending this year in that division. I don't see McNabb putting up really um, impressive numbers. I would not be surprised at all if Christian Ponder, the first-round draft pick in Minnesota, doesn't take the reins at some point this season once once the Vikings start to look ahead rather than um, at the 2011 season. I think McNabb's going to have somewhat of a struggle kind of learning Bill Musgrave's West Coast offense or his version of the offense, because I think, you know, even though McNabb says there's parts of it that translate nicely to Philadelphia, 
We saw Donovan McNabb in the same offense for a very long time, 11 seasons, which is a lifetime in the NFL. We saw him so comfortable in that offense that I don't think he had to think. Um, he just he knew it like the back of his hand. He wasn't in his comfort zone in Washington last year. I don't think he'll be in the same comfort zone that he had in Philadelphia this year in Minnesota. And I think he's a little bit of a different quarterback when he when he doesn't have the security of knowing that offense inside and out. So I don't expect a debacle at the level of, of 2010 in D.C., but I also don't think we're going to see the McNabb again who's capable of leading a team to the NFC title game. Mr. McKinney was obviously not ready to play football this year anyway, but anytime you lose your left tackle, you wonder how that's going to affect the team in general. Is that going to hurt Adrian Peterson, or have they replaced McKinney sufficiently enough? Well, McKinney's game had been had been kind of slipping the last couple of years. I know he made the Pro Bowl two years ago, but it was somewhat on reputation. Um, it It's an issue in Minnesota. I think that the offensive line has certainly... Um, has certainly regressed in the last couple of years, and I know um, they have a number of players that they're hopeful that will step up, but I don't think um, they have a clear-cut answer yet at that at that pivotal position of left tackle. And uh, when you have an older quarterback who's, you know, he's capable of moving around, but he's obviously getting slower um, by the season at this age, I think that becomes even more important. So that's another trouble spot for Minnesota on the horizon this year. Last team and last thing, and that's the Colts. You were able to be at Colts camp in Anderson, Indiana, and see Peyton Manning firsthand. Just based on what you've seen, in your opinion, do you believe that he'll be there week one? Well, I, I only base it on um, we've never not seen Peyton Manning right. under center in the NFL, so it's hard to imagine something that we've never seen before. So. I kind of agree with Tony Dungy, his former head coach in Indianapolis, who basically said he believes Peyton will be there unless he's dead. I think um, it's 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 clear that no one really knows how long the nerves in his uh, in his neck are going to need to regenerate. But I have a hard time believing that Peyton Manning uh, will take himself out of the Week One game at Houston uh, if he's capable at all of playing anything close to his level. So put me down for a, we'll see Peyton Manning under center, and it will not be just a token appearance to keep the consecutive uh, starting streak alive. I think it'll be a version of Peyton Manning, and he probably will be better at the end of September than he was at the beginning of September. Last question. You said that you, you said in your postcard that you were really impressed with Austin Collie and you think he's poised for a breakout year. What was it that about him that just made you think that it's time for him to really emerge as a star in the league? Well, I mean, he was he was close to the top in terms of the leaders in the NFL in both um, uh, receptions and touchdowns when he was really knocked out for the season last year with the first of those concussions. Um, and so he, he was on his way to a breakthrough-type season. I just have a feeling he's determined to show people that he's he's not a you know he's he's not an injury prone player. Um, I think he's more comfortable in that offense all the time. I think he became more of a security blanket for Peyton Manning, and I think that continues. Um, and 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 barring an un, you know unforeseen and and obviously un, uh, unfortunate return to the concussion issues, I think Collie is going to be a bigger and bigger part of that offense. 
um, as his career continues to unfold. And I just think he's he's become a very valuable um, weapon in that offense. He's really kind of the Wes Welker uh, of the Colts' offense, and I think he becomes, um, if he can put a full season together, and I think he will, I think he will become one of the top ten receivers in the game. It's the Sportscasters with uh, Don Banks from SportsIllustrated.com. Sports Illustrated, he's working very hard on the uh, upcoming season. You could find some of his work on SI.com and, of course, uh, in the upcoming SI preview issue. And you can follow him on Twitter at Don Banks. Thank you very much, Mr. Banks. We really appreciate it. Be good. good to be with you, Steven. Hey, Don. Yes. You know what that means. Book club. Book club update. We didn't do one last week, so I wanted to make sure we did one today. Basically, as we said at the beginning of the month, the book club this month is just going to be some really casual football reading. I think the very first week we updated, I mentioned that I'd been reading some articles from a book called, a book by uh, a guy called uh, Tim Layden, who works for SI and SI.com. And uh, I've been trying to track him down, and I found him on Facebook. Oh, yeah. Kind of Facebook stalked him. And the nice thing about Facebook compared to Twitter is that you can inbox someone on Facebook regardless of whether they follow you or not. Right, right. So on Twitter, I can't send someone a private message unless they follow me, but on Facebook, I can. So initially, I sent Mr. Layden a message and introduced myself and asked him if he'd be interested in coming on the podcast sometime. And then the next, <laughs> the next week or two after I had mentioned his book on the podcast, I said I wrote him this. I said, Mr. Layden, since I last emailed, I've had the chance to purchase, read, and learn from your fantastic book about the evolution of football. I figured it wouldn't hurt to let you know that I read the book and would love to have you on the podcast sometime. Did the bribe help at all? Question mark, Steve. <laughs> so Mr. Layden was nice enough to write back the next day and say, Thanks for buying the book. Let's do something in September. I'm leaving tomorrow for the World Track and Field Championships in Korea. So, first, Mr. Layden, have a good time in Korea. Right. I hope that the flight goes well, that the immigration process is easy for you, and that you get to see some world track records broken. Have a good time at the World Championships in Korea. And that you make it back in one piece so you can be a guest on the Sportscasters. <laughs> but I thought it was kind of funny that because of my desire to read his book based on what we're doing here this month with the book club, that it came up. Another couple things that I've read for the purposes of the book club this month. One, I finally finished Rick Eis- Rich Eisen's book called Total Access, A Journey Through the NFL. I have had this book for at least a year or two and have read it a few different times, a chapter here or a chapter there, but never finished it. I finally did that. And also last Christmas, I got the Monday Morning Quarterback book that's basically a reproduction of a bunch of articles from Peter King's Monday Morning Quarterback, and I finished that as well. So that's what I've been doing for the book club update and Don wants to keep what he's been doing secret. <laughs> so we're not going to mention that, but we're going to, we're going to take a break right now. That's about it for the book club update. When we come back, we'll be joined by Stuart Mandel from sports illustrated and sports illustrated.com. 
Our next guest is from Cincinnati, Ohio, and is a graduate of Northwestern University. In 2007, he released his first book, Bulls, Pulls, and Tattered Souls, tracking the chaos and controversy that reign over the college football industry. In 2008, he earned first and second place honors for his work in the Football Writers Association of America's annual writing contest. He has worked for the Cincinnati Inquirer, ABC Sports Online, and ESPN the magazine. Today is a senior writer at SI.com covering the national college football beat and college basketball. He also contributes features for Sports Illustrated. Be sure to listen to his podcast called The Mandel Initiative. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Stuart Mandel. How are you doing today, Stuart? Good. How are you? Doing very good. Very excited to be talking to you again so soon. I said a second ago off air, we usually don't bother a guest that was kind enough to join us quite so quickly. You are on episode number 31, which was January 19th, and here we are at the only about a month later. And I had to talk to you because, first of all, this Miami thing is unbelievable. What in the world? See, last time we started this interview, we talked about the debacle at Ohio State and to a smaller extent, the mess at North Carolina. And in that time, since we talked last, here's another huge program with huge trouble. What's going on? And I've heard the word death penalty thrown around here. Why is this more serious than the other scandals that we, heard, that we were talking about earlier in, this, in the offseason? Well, everybody's throwing around death penalty possibility, but anybody who, who thinks says they know that that's a possibility or that it's not a possibility is lying. I mean, we it's only happened once ever to SMU 25 years ago, and, I mean, we are at the very beginning of what will probably be a very long investigation, and it'll be a long time. I mean, I'm thinking years before the Miami thing comes to a close and we know what the penalties are going to be. Um, but I think the reason this has taken on the, the level of uh, interest that it has, I mean, you mentioned the Ohio State scandal, which was obviously a big deal because, uh, you know, one of the best head coaches in the country had to resign over it, but it was really one infraction committed by him. Um, North Carolina has a lot of things to it as well, uh, but North Carolina is not a big brand-name program, so they don't necessarily um, – people don't get up in arms about it. This is Miami. This is the U, five national championships. And the um, level of detail that this disgraced booster, Nevin Shapiro, went into – but Yahoo, you just don't see that very often. It's just, he was, you know, he might have questionable motives, but he told all and painted a picture of a guy who just had unlimited access to this program for eight years and just did whatever he wanted with the um, with the players and and he alleges with the help of some of the assistant coaches and no and nobody at the Miami administration either stopped it or or uh, or somehow they completely missed what was going on. So um, you're talking about booster violations. You're talking about I don't even know how many do- amounts of dollars um, involving, you know, 70-something athletes he's alleging were involved in this. So it's, a, it's on a whole other level from the other stuff we've been talking about this offseason. You know, I know that this is a very, very extreme case with un- maybe unparalleled violation. But when I thought of the Ohio State and the North Carolina issues and some of the other 
probations that programs have put on. Maybe the maybe the USC one comes to mind. Is it possible to have a college football program that succeeds at the level that USC did without having some at least gray area violations going on? Like can is there a such thing in 2011 as a clean college football program? Or have the clean... Have you the know, lights? I'd like to think that there is, but, you know, the NCAA rulebook is so thick and there are so many ways for coaches to cut corners in recruiting that I would think that a lot of programs have some stuff that's gone on that just doesn't get reported in terms of, I mean, you know, maybe contact with a crew, with a recruit during a period you're not supposed to have contact with him. Um, sometimes these kids, you know, like with what's been talked about with Oregon and Willie Lyle, sometimes somehow kids may be able to take a visit to a school, and but you don't really know what, how he was able to afford to do that, and nobody really asks questions. I think some stuff like that is pretty common. It's probably pretty common for players. I mean, any little thing they take from somebody other than a family member or a friend is an extra benefit. So free lunch is an extra benefit. I'm sure that goes on all the time. But I don't think that there are Devin Shapiros on every campus um, by any means. Uh, you know, players, and I talk to them all the time, are told time and time and time again what's right and what's wrong, and obviously some of them might not care. I think for the most part, guys, um, you know, want to play college football, want to preserve their eligibility, um, and follow the rules. Is there anything the NCAA can do to punish a program without punishing the kids that are stuck there that didn't have anything to do with violations that happened years before them? Well, I think if it's an infraction, if it's an infraction by a coach, there needs to be a way, and there, there is to some degree, to penalize just the coach, and that's probably what's going to happen for the most part with Ohio State. I mean unless something unusual happens at this committee hearing, um, it looks like they're going to pay the price for games they already played. And, and you know, obviously Jim Trestle is going to be penalized, but it doesn't sound like there's going to be anything major going forward. Um, but that was a case where the coach basically took the blame for everything. Um, when it's more widespread, and in fact in the case of uh, Miami, I mean, no head coaches were implicated, at least not yet, and the assistants that were mentioned aren't even at the school anymore. So it's the school that's going to be punished. And I don't, I don't know. I can't think necessarily of a way that you punish the school without it affecting future uh, generations of players. Cause it just takes so long for uh, for them to go through the whole investigation and uh, infractions process. You know, I just think about some of the poor kids at USC who've had to go through these last two years. And, you know, one of the main culprits in the whole thing, Pete Carroll, just scoots off into, uh, into the NFL and you know makes makes his millions of dollars, and you know these kids either have to stick it out at USC or sit out a whole season and wait to transfer. And I guess it's just one of those things, as you say. It's just what can you do? It takes a long time to to discover some of these violations. Another yeah, thing, I mean, the NCAA has yeah. complete control over the players, but they don't really. I mean, once you're out of college sports, whether I mean, like for instance, with Terrell Fryer in this situation here. You know, they they had no control over him anymore once he turned pro, and they have no control over Pete Carroll once he goes to the NFL. And and it should be noted, of course, that Pete Carroll was never, um, you know, he 
even though he, it was his program that got penalized, he was never right. uh, found of wrongdoing. So, um, you know. Right, it was like, more on Reggie Bush was kind of the center Reggie of that Bush, one, you know, right. was his running backs coach. So, so if you wanted to go back to college coaching tomorrow, I don't think there would be any ramifications. But, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that, generally speaking, it's the players who end up feeling the brunt of the sanctions. Another thing that's happened since we talked last is the AP Top 25 came out. Did anything surprise you? Anything jump out? Um, anything maybe very different from Stewart's Top 25 if you were to make one? Well, these polls all seem to kind of follow the same. I mean, it's amazing to me how more and more websites like ours put out early, early preseason polls in, in, as far as back as January. And then when the poll comes out in August, it's really not that different. Uh, you would think that, that the, there would be enough developments over the offseason to cause some shakeups. But, um, you know, nothing, I can't say anything really uh, surprise. Well, maybe Georgia being 19th, coming off a losing season. I know there's a lot of reason to think they'll be better, but that's kind of a blind faith thing. Same with Florida. Um, I know Texas was ranked in the coaches poll coming off a losing season. I mean, that's a little bit a uh, leap of faith, I think, in the case of all those teams. But um, the team that, that really baffles me, and this was even before the uh, bar fight last week, is LSU, who's being, you know, I think they're fourth in the AP poll. So basically everybody's saying they're on the very, very short list contempt for the national title. And I just don't see it. I just see, you know, Jordan Jefferson, inconsistent, unreliable quarterback, maybe in trouble now on top of that. Um, lost a lot of guys like Patrick Peterson, Drake Nevis, who were key players for them. No question they're talented, but they had a lot of things go their way last year to win 11 games. Plus Miles, you know, lightning in a bottle several times. And I just kind of feel like this year with the schedule they have, just I can't see them making it through that schedule without a few losses. don't think they finish fourth. What are your thoughts on preseason polls in general? I know a lot of people would, you know, like to do without them. Like, just for example, you know, if Oklahoma and Alabama run the table, they're going to play for the national championship. And even if a team, like let's say, for some reason, Michigan State runs the table, they're just never going to be able to make up that ground from 17 to to two that you know it's almost like yeah. it's almost like a, a, a nice head start for these teams because these polls yeah the are way I've always put it is it's like having um, you know uh, pole position in a race right I mean, exactly it's, it's, it's you are you're given a starting point and a kind of a and, and a handicap um, and and it does come up and that's only really once that the scenario you described came up where Oklahoma and USC ran the table and right. Auburn you know, couldn't couldn't pass them. But, you know, it comes up in more subtle ways. Um, you know, last year, if it was... I remember last year there was a three-way tie in the Big 10 between Ohio State, uh, Michigan State, and Wisconsin, and Wisconsin ended up going to the Rose Bowl because they had the highest BCS ranking. Well, what would have happened if all three of those teams had started on equal footing? Where would Michigan State have ended up? You know, they ended up the lowest of the three, probably because they started the lowest of the three. So when they suffered their loss, they fell further down than the other two teams did. That's, I think, some of the subtle ways that the preseason polls end up hurting teams or helping teams. So, But you know what? They're unavoidable. I mean, people love polls. There's Even if the AP and the coaches didn't have an official one, SI.com would still have power rankings. ESPN would still have a power poll. Um, 
you know, the Harris poll, which is used in the BCS standings, does not put out a poll until week, I want to say week four, and which is probably the way it should be. And then when their poll comes out, it, it mirrors exactly the AP poll. So, you know, it's not like that there's a lot of people out there with a blank piece of paper on week four or week five ranking the teams from scratch. I think there's always going to be, you're always going to go into season with preconceived notions, um, and it takes a while for those to shake off. Last year it took probably till the Iron Bowl off for people to truly accept that Alabama wasn't as good as um, as they've been made out to be when they were preseason number one. It takes a while, sometimes almost the whole season, for those preseason um, expectations to go away. This year we had five teams get first place votes. Oklahoma had 36, which is the most, but also Alabama, Oregon, LSU, and Boise State got a first place vote vote as well. You kind of mentioned you're not really sold on LSU. Of those other four teams who got first place votes, you think those are warranted, and do you think those will be teams that will be in the national championship hunt all year, or do you think there might be one or two of them that are a bit overrated, and as I said, you did mention LSU. I'm a little surprised that Boise State would get a first place vote. I know Kellen Moore's back, but they play a tougher and tougher conference this year, and they did not go undefeated last year. Um, I think they'll be very good. I think they'll be a top 10 team, and very surprised they got first place votes. I mean, I think Alabama is the team to beat this year, uh, and I know I just said they weren't last year, but I mean, last year the um, they had nine first-time starters on defense, and everybody, all those guys except Marcel Darius are back, so they have ten returning starters this year on defense, and they're loaded. I mean, they're guys like Courtney Upshaw and Dante Hightower and Jake Kirkpatrick. Um, I could see three or four of those guys showing up in the first round of the draft next year. Same with Trent Richardson, their running back. So uh, they're the most talented team in the country, and the only question mark really surrounding them is they haven't named a starting quarterback yet. Um, I don't think it's because those guys, neither of them are very good. I think they're actually pretty good. Uh, Saban just hasn't decided on a guy. But uh, And I also see why Oklahoma's ranked so high. I mean, they're 1-1-8 one to me. Uh, I just happen to fight Alabama. Notre Dame named a quarterback today, and I, me and my partner got a laugh because when I looked at it real quick, I thought it said Irish named Christ as quarterback, and I thought, <laughs> wow, they got, <laughs> they're going right to the big guy there, but it was, it's actually Chris. Uh, what about that Notre Dame QB battle, and why did Chris come out on top? Yeah, I don't think anybody's too surprised by that, even though Tommy Reese um, was the quarterback during the winning streak at the end of last year. He was more of a caretaker guy. Uh, Chris is a veteran. He's talented. Um, he's now, you know, uh, I want to say this is going to be his third year. Um, his third year. And he's been injured the last two years, but he's played both the years and times. Uh, so I think this is what we expected from Brian Kelly. I would not be surprised if some of the other guys further down the depth chart get some playing time, though, especially the freshman Everett Colston from South Carolina, who's more mobile. I could see Brian Kelly creating some special packages uh, to get him on the field. What can we expect from Notre Dame this year? I've going back to preseason polls. You know, something that neither of us are all that fond of. They've they've done pretty well. Sixteen in the AP poll. Are they that good, or is it that that name and you know just Notre Dame just being so polarizing that maybe they're a bit overrated? I, you know, I think the name will always help draw them attention, but. You know, there's certainly legitimate reason to think they could, you know, reach that ranking or higher. Um, 
you know, first of all, I think a lot of people realize how good a coach Brian Kelly is, and they definitely had a rough first two-thirds of the year last year. They closed in really good fashion, and I think what everybody's uh, intrigued by with Notre Dame is the defense, which has been their weakness for so many years. I mean, it, they were dominant over the last four games last year, including the bowl game against Miami, um, and they returned most of those guys, and they bring in some, some you know, they recruited three defensive linemen that were all four or five-star guys that are going to probably contribute right away. So I think that's the reason why people are pretty feeling pretty good about Notre Dame, and they feel like the offense, as long as Ryan Kelly's the coach, the offense is going to be decent, and maybe they'll maybe they'll take the next step. You know, they've got Michael Floyd, who's an elite receiver. Sierra Wood looked really good at running back last year. Maybe they'll be an explosive offense. I don't know. But I do know I think you can finally count on their defense for once. So they do have the makings of a top 15 or top 20 team. One thing I've been researching for something we did on the show is the non-conference games that are coming up. And the first five weeks of the season, all the way from September 3rd to October 1st, there's probably 10 or 12 absolutely fabulous non-conference games. Two of the best involve LSU. LSU starts off with Oregon. They also play West Virginia. What are you? What is your take on the non-conference schedule for teams that play in the SEC or what's left of the Big 12 or the Pac-10? What is in it for LSU to play such a difficult non-conference schedule and then expect to run the table in the SEC and have a chance to compete for a national championship? Well, I wish more teams took the LSU philosophy. I really do. I mean... Uh, they're definitely the exception in the in the SEC. I think a lot, you know most of the teams in there play at least one legitimate non-conference game, like Alabama going to play at Penn State, but then they play three Sun Belt teams or one AA team. So for LSU to take on two games like that is um, unusual, and hats off to them. But you're right, there is really no reward. Um, if you lose, you lose. Uh, you'll drop in the polls, even though if you're the number four team and you lose, I don't know, by on a last-second field goal to Oregon, the number three team. Technically, you did exactly what the polls said you were supposed to do, but, um, you know, it's tough. I think that, you know, I think that LSU goes into the season playing for an SEC championship, and obviously those first two, those early games have no effect on that. Uh, you know, so that's one factor. But, uh, you know, really it's them, and then there's really only a couple other teams that, that have that philosophy. Oklahoma's one of them. Right. They, they play two top 25 teams. Yeah, they're going to have Florida State this year. And they Tulsa. They usually play two or three decent teams. Um, and then the Pac-12 as a whole, uh, you see a lot of teams play very tough out-of-conference games there. But you know what? That burned them last year when they only had, I think, four full-eligible teams. USC was ineligible. A bunch of teams finished five and seven that, uh, you know, they just replaced – Oregon State had played, uh, you know, Portland State instead of TCU that first week, then they were 6-6 six and six and they go to a bowl. So uh, those teams, unfortunately, are the exception. I mean, I'm glad there were some great non-conference matchups this year, but that you wish there were, that it was normal and that there would be more. I read a column you wrote. I don't know if it was posted today or yesterday. I can't really quite recall. But you talked a little bit about, well, you talked all about the first-year coaches and kind of what you expect the record to be. And it seems like you predict uh, kind of a tough goal for, for, for uh, quite a few of them and, and maybe a decent goal for some. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the first-year coaches and who you think will have the most success and maybe one or two that you think could struggle quite a bit. 
Right. Well, obviously, in a lot of cases, those coaches are new coaches for a reason. The team was struggling. They fired their previous coach. So they're not wa- they're walking into, you know, a rebuilding situation. So, for instance, Will Muschamp at Florida uh, inherits a Florida team that was down a little bit last year, and now he's going to try to switch them from the spread to the pro-style offense. Uh, so I think I picked him to go 7-5. and five. Kind of a similar thing with, with Brady Hope walking into Michigan, who's still kind of trying to rebound. Um, and they're going to completely re- rejigger their offense from the spread back to pro style. So those are the coaches who I think could have a rough first year and then get a lot better in the second year, kind of like what we're projecting for Brian Kelly right now. Um, the guys that I think are in good shape their first year, Dana Holgerson at West Virginia, you know, takes over a team and he's, he's an offensive guru and he's going to have at his disposal Geno Smith, who's a really talented quarterback, some great receivers. I, I think he can go in there. And, uh, you know, I know it's an unusual situation with the way he took over in the summer, but, you know, if that's not an issue, if the team buys into him, certainly they could win the Big East. They could win nine or ten games. Uh, and another guy who, who inherited, uh, you know, a pretty uh, stock team was uh, Rocky Long at San Diego State. You know, when Hope got the Michigan job, they promoted him. And they just had their breakthrough year last year where they finally went to a bowl game, won nine games. Uh, they got a great quarterback, Ryan Lindley, great running back, Ronnie Hillman. And I know most people kind of dismiss them uh, now that Hope's gone, but he's a veteran coach, and I think he can win a nine or ten games his uh, first year as well. I still love the fact that Hope won't won't call Ohio State anything but Ohio and that he won't wear red. I just think that that's hilarious. Uh, you also wrote a nice piece about Trent Richardson, who is going to take over uh, most of the carries for Mark Ingram, who's now in New Orleans. And you also did the uh, team preview for uh, Alabama for the SI preview issue. Talk a little bit about Trent Richardson. I mean, he's a guy who's rushed for for 1,451 yards as a backup in two seasons. Is he a guy that maybe outside of Andrew Luck, who's everyone's all-world Heisman favorite, is he another guy? Is he a guy that can maybe really lead Alabama and – work his way into at least being in New York for the Heisman Trophy presentation? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, first of all, if you play for a national championship contender, you put yourself in a good position to be in the Heisman race right there, and, and most people expect Alabama will be. You know, Mark Ingram, uh, Trent Richardson, whenever he's been on the field the last two years, I mean, it's been kind of the debate. You know, Ingram, even though Ingram won a Heisman, there's always that content, contingent that thought maybe Richardson is better. Um or maybe better is not the right word, but more more versatile. Uh, the guy, if you've ever seen him in person, is unbelievable. He's just a specimen. He's sculpted. He's I mean, he's broken all their weight room records, and he's fast, and he can break away. So, uh, and he's playing behind a veteran offensive line. So I, you know, barring injuries, I think he's poised to have a huge year. You, uh, the Mandel Initiative, is a podcast that we talked a little bit about last time you were on, and how interesting it is that it started as something just so that you could talk about your passion lost and it built into this college football podcast, which I absolutely love and I, I've been listening to since I had you on and, and really enjoy it. And you had Coach uh, Mark Rick from Georgia on and you did a little SEC preview. So you have said that you really like Auburn. You're a little bit down on LSU. This SEC is the premier conference in college football. What else do we need to know about the SEC as we get into the season? Is there a team that maybe is like 
Auburn last year that can kind of come out of nowhere and win this? Or is Alabama just too tough? And do You, you just... know, I thought Arkansas would have a chance to be that team, but then they lost Niall Davis, their star running back, for the season. So it's hard to, to have that kind of faith in them. You know, I think, um, you know, I'm fairly confident about Alabama in the West. Uh, the East, it, you know, really, it's, can South Carolina take that next step? They got to the title game last year and lost badly to Auburn. But they've got so much talent now. I mean, guys like... Marcus Lattimore and Alshon Jeffrey, and now Jadavian Clowney, the freshman defensive end. I mean, these are some of the best players in their position in the country. And so I think we're all a little skeptical because it's South Carolina and they've never done it before. But what if they rise up and win the SEC and, and maybe even play for the national championship? Not out of the realm of possibility by any means. And I think we've all been waiting for Spurrier to kind of take that next step. He's had quite a few years there now to kind of get the team to this point. Um if Alabama were to fall in a game before the SEC championship, is there a team that you look at that could pick them off other than, as you mentioned, kind of South Carolina? Like, is there a game that maybe is on the road instead of at home that they got to be really careful not to get tripped up at? Yeah, I think uh, if I look at the schedule, you know, there's, there's two road games that stand out. One's at Florida. I think the Alabama is better than Florida, but that's still a tough game at the Swamp. And then I guess the, the, the trap game, if you will. I mean, they play LSU on November 5th, and that'll be one of the biggest games, if not the biggest game of the year. But the next week, they got to turn around and go to Starkville and play a Mississippi State team that's getting better and better. Uh, I think they finished 15th in the country last year. Clobbered Michigan in the bowl game. Dan Mullen's doing great things there. Um, that's a tough two-game stretch right there. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, it's with the, the Auburn game at the end of the season right around the corner. So I don't know, maybe maybe the game in Starkville um, turns out to be a, a kind of a season maker. The Sportscasters are here with Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. We mentioned his podcast, The Mandel Initiative. It's something that you can find on iTunes. Uh, you can find it right on Sports Illustrated's website. And you can follow him on Twitter. He is at SL Mandel. Is there anything else you want to mention before you go? Anything you're working on? Anything we can look forward to in the magazine or on the Internet? Well, you know, next week is uh, game week, so um, Monday will be my first uh, college football overtime column, and that runs uh, every Monday morning alongside Peter King's Monday morning quarterback uh, throughout the season. All right. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time and, and really value you uh, making time for us, and we can't thank you enough. And we'll give you a bit of time, but maybe we can do it again sometime during the middle of the season or so. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, buddy. All right, we want to thank Stuart Mandel for joining us on the show. Stuart's always a great guest. That's his second appearance in just a short amount of time. So we want to thank Stuart for joining us, and we look forward to talking him during talking to him during the season. You know, the way we the way we figured it is if the AP can have a poll, and who knows, maybe someday we'll vote in that one as well. <laughs> and the coaches can have a poll, and. There's all these magazines out there that have polls. We figured the sportscasters should have an NCAA college football top 10. And the way we did it is Don and I separately put together a top 10 ballot and then combined it for our consensus top 10. 
and we're going to present it to you today. And it's going to be our preseason top 10. And week by week, we'll update it. Probably most times we'll just include it in the blog, which I think I teased earlier is going to become a bigger right. and bigger part of the show as we move forward and evolve here. So most times we might not do this on the air, but we are going to keep it going over the course of the season. We watch college football all day on Saturdays like everyone else and have our own opinion as to what the top 10 is. So here we present the very first Sportscasters, NCAA, college football, top 10. Don, you want to get us started? Yeah, starting with number 10, South Carolina, the Gamecocks. Coached by Steve Spurrier, the old ball coach. He's had a few years there now to get his team together. And uh, he's got a nice quarterback prospect there. And I expect big things out of them. Number 9, from the Big Ten, we have Wisconsin. Big Ten is going to be a very competitive conference this year. Obviously, with Nebraska moving moving to the Big Ten, they're going to help boost it. And even though Ohio State should be down, they'll still be probably a top 20 team or so. So that's going to be a tough conference. Number eight, uh, Texas A&M. Texas A&M from the Big 12. Uh, probably going to be Oklahoma's most difficult game in the conference is going to be their matchup against Texas A&M. Number seven, we have Nebraska. Nebraska making their first appearance in the Big Ten, and I think it was Stuart Mandel's last appearance where he kind of made a great point. Nebraska's kind of been a team in the wrong conference for the last few years in the Big 12 because the Big 12 is this conference where there's all this offense and people are slinging the ball all over the place. But when you think about Big Ten football, you think about big, tough running and pounding and battling for every yard. And that's more what Nebraska does. So I think it's a great fit. And I'm actually going to predict right now that Nebraska will win that conference. Number six, Florida State. Uh, they got that big week, what is it, week three matchup against Oklahoma. Yep, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. Florida State's season and maybe Oklahoma's season to some extent really will come down to that game. Number five, I have Boise State. Boise State is the little engine that could. They've moved <laughs> up a conference this year. Uh, their conference should be a little bit more difficult. Non-conference games aren't going to be as easy, and always they challenge themselves a little bit in the non-conference schedule. Has there been a ruling about the blue fields yet? I know some uh, some of the other coach filed like a complaint to the competition committee. That as far as I know, blue field's going to stay. Okay. It was a kind of a lame, lame uh, accusation anyway. Number four, Alabama. Alabama, obviously, in the SEC national championship game in uh, two years ago. They defeated Texas. The SEC has won the national championship, I think, the last six seasons now. And uh, Coach Saban has Alabama poised for another big year. At number three, we have Oregon. Oregon was in the national championship game last season, losing just barely on a last-second field goal to Cam Newton and Auburn. They bring back a ton of weapons. And I would not be surprised if they were in the national championship game this season. Number two, even with their off-the-field issues right now, we have LSU. Yeah, LSU, look it. <laughs> Here's the thing. The number one or number two team in the country at the end of the season is going to be the winner of the SEC. So 
whoever's filling out their poll, I'm sure when they consider one or two, they say to themselves, who do you think is going to win the SEC? And we, Don and I, think that it's LSU. So that's why they're ranked where they're ranked. And like the AP, we have Oklahoma at number one. Oklahoma just brings back a load of talent. And we're going to make our predictions for the Big 12 or for the national championship game at the end of the show. But if Oklahoma makes it there, they're going to have a lot to prove because they've been in this spot a few times and not gotten it done. They haven't won the national championship since 2000, and they've had a few looks at it since then. So to go with our top 10 NCAA college football teams, we wanted to make sure that you're ready for the start of the college football season, which is only two weeks away. And the first five weeks of the season feature some really great conference football or non-conference, non-conference right. football games. And we're going to give you one or two for each week starting September 3rd and moving all the way to October 1st. Yeah, starting September 3rd, that first uh, week, we have number two, our number two playing our number three in Oregon versus LSU in Arlington. Uh, like I said about the Florida State game in Oklahoma, that's going to decide their season. You might have your season decided week one. Yeah, that's an unbelievable game being played at Texas Stadium in that monstrosity that Jerry Jones built, <laughs> the place where Oklahoma actually opened their season two years ago, and it was the death of Sam Bradford yeah. that night there. So kind of have that on, on my mind. But if you're not into that game, I think you're nuts. But you might be interested in, or both, Boise State versus Georgia, which is in a neutral field in Atlanta which should be a very interesting opening week matchup. Georgia's one of those teams that's just outside of our top 10, probably could have made the top 10, and them versus Boise State will be a really interesting game that week as well. Yeah, week two, our number four, Alabama, plays Penn State and their uh, zombie head coach. And, yeah, another big game right off the bat, non-conference game. And these two two teams, this is a return game. Uh, These two teams played in Alabama, I think it was two years ago now, and Penn State was not on the same field. They could not compete with them. Right. It was it was a blowout, and Penn State just didn't look like they were in the same league. So it would be interesting to see if they've progressed at all and can compete at home against Alabama. Also that day is Michigan-Notre Dame, which is always, no matter how good right. their team is, that's always a fun game to watch. Week three, we have a game that we mentioned a couple times, Oklahoma at Florida State in Florida State. Um, also a return game from last right. season. Oklahoma won very by a very big score. I think it was 34-10 to 10 or something like that. But Florida State's going to be a much, much tougher matchup. And Landry Jones has yet to prove that he can win big games outside of Norman, Oklahoma. And it's, you know, right away, here's the test. On the road at Florida State, you know, I think for all these teams, Oregon, LSU, Alabama, Oklahoma, if you're going to lose a game, it might as well be in September because that's one thing about the BCS. It's always been said. If you're going to lose, lose early. So there's these huge matchups. And, you know, we want to say that the Oregon-LSU game, that's their season. But you know what? If LSU loses that game, then runs then the table out. and right. wins the SEC, right. they're going to go to the national championship game. Right. So we almost want to be careful about how we state that. But – 
you know, for all of these teams, these games are huge. And if it's one of those years where there's a bunch of teams with one loss, you want to be Oklahoma or Oregon and LSU and be able have to have that say, loss to Florida State. Be or, able right. to say not only did we run the table in our or lose maybe we lost one game in our conference, but before when everyone else was playing Gussie State, we played LSU and beat them, or we played Penn State and beat them. You know, so that's big as well. Other games that week, uh, we're talking week three, uh, September seventeenth. We have Ohio State versus Miami. And Notre Dame versus Michigan State. So Notre Dame with two big games right off the bat. Yep. Week four, which is the Saturday, is 9-24-11. Uh, LSU is at West Virginia. So LSU's non-conference schedule is no joke. And if LSU can make it to the national championship game after playing Oregon and West Virginia, who, I mean, West Virginia is not in our top ten, but West Virginia is a team who's been in BCS bowl games many times. Right, it's not UB. No, uh, and then navigated through the SEC schedule. And you got to wonder what the logic is behind having such tough non-conference games when you play right. in such a difficult conference like the SEC. On the one hand, you want to, you kind of want to applaud them for it. I mean, it makes for entertaining television, and it's way better than, like I said, watching LSU play Buffalo or uh, whoever. But yeah, I mean, from a competitive standpoint, it's it's strange. Maybe they maybe they want to use the regular season as a way to get ready for their bowl, but that that's a lot to ask of a team. Yeah, absolutely. And Tulsa uh, plays Boise State, and that's a conference game now that Boise has moved up. But I wanted to just mention it because it will be interesting to see that's Boise State's first game in their new conference against uh, a t- a t- Tulsa's like right – at the verge, I think they were in the. I think they were number twenty-five in the coaches' poll and just missed the AP top twenty-five. So, they're a team of note. Week five, uh, October first, we have Texas A&M versus Arkansas in Arlington. So, right off the bat, that's our number five versus our. Well, we don't have Arkansas in the top ten, but they're another team that's just we're missed just below the 10, it, right? Probably like around number thirteen, something like that. So I can't remember. A college football season where each of the first five weeks you have a game that features two teams in the top 25 facing off. The only game, I don't think Penn State is in the top 25. Right. But again, they're another team that's not far off. And by September 10th, maybe if they're impressive that first week, they might sneak into the top 10. It's nice to see it uh, that games that don't have to be played are being played and that they're not just playing cream puff, gussy state teams. Right. And it, it it makes a difference to the fans. I mean, it, it's huge. Because if you look at the non-conference schedule that Auburn played last year, I mean, you'd giggle. Right. You know, and it, it doesn't mean that it's any less impressive they won the national championship because they got through the SEC, which is the cream of the crop in college football. Right. If you can run the table in the SEC, go undefeated, and then win the SEC championship game on top of it, you you deserve to be where you are. But... I mean, their non-conference schedule is a joke. So we just wanted to take a minute after having Stuart on and talk a little bit about our top 10, which we have just started, and kind of get you pumped up for some of the games that are at the beginning of the college football season. So we're going to take one more break, come back with Andrew Lawrence from SI.com and talk a little bit more 
NFL football. Our next guest is from Brooklyn, New York, and is a graduate of the University of Missouri. He has spent the last few weeks traveling to various NFL training camps for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. He also covers the WNBA, women's college basketball, and tennis for SI and SI.com. Warren Sportscasters, welcome to the very talented Andrew Lawrence. How are you doing today, Andrew? Doing great. Uh, thanks for having me. How about you? Very excited to have you on, and... It's a great, beautiful day here in Buffalo, New York. Nice, very fall-like, very, very, very much like a Sunday where the Bills should be playing. Like it feels like really? today would be the perfect day. Yeah, it's only like seventy-three degrees out. It's cool. There's a little bit of a breeze, and I'd imagine if you were a road team and you saw Buffalo on the schedule, this is exactly what you would dream the weather would be like. Well, I was gonna say I don't like you know just kind of thinking of Buffalo. You know when you kind of Put together a picture in your mind's eye. I don't think I've, I could t- I could put together a picture that's uh, anything but like snowy and gray and gross and unpleasant. Yeah, we get so that. I'm glad to we hear get that, 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 uh, that you're actually capable of good weather. Out yeah, there. we are, we are capable of it. And you, you know, I told you before. I, I'm a really big Saints fan, so I don't get to go to a lot of Bills games because that's usually a conflict. But when I went to the Saints and the Bills played an opening day in 2000. 2000, and it was the hottest day, I think, in the history of Buffalo in September. And then I also went and seen the Saints and the Bills play when I was a little kid. It was 1987, and it snowed mm-hmm. six feet, I think, that day. So <laughs> that's that's Buffalo. It's either snowing six, <laughs> snow six feet or nice out. So anyway, you have been spending some time on the road checking out some camps and a good buddy of mine is going to be really pumped up about the next three minutes of this podcast because you did spend some time in Jacksonville, and he's a big Jacksonville fan. Is that team looking like a 4-12 and kind of team to you, or do you think that they have uh, enough talent that they can put together a decent run in the AFC South? They're actually kind of a, probably the most interesting team that I've visited because you kind of forget that this team has essentially been in rebuilding mode for the last two years. And for them, you know, to go eight and eight, and especially in that last, you know, in that, you know, the last three games, three, four games, basically have a chance, you know, to win the AFC South. It's like if they did that, they would have been way ahead of schedule in terms of what they were building. But uh, but I actually think that, that they're – that they they did a great job of addressing some of their you know some of the issues that plagued them last year in terms of you know you know fortifying the middle of that run defense uh, or just the middle of that defense period uh, you know improving that secondary uh, bringing in Landry um, bringing in Drew Coleman who I might who I think might be the best of those pickups back there. Um, Bring your uh, your former Buffalo Bill, whose last name I can't pronounce, to to anchor. Paul uh, to, 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 Yes, to, <laughs> to to anchor the middle of that defense, um, and then and then to kind of like luck out in the draft to have a, a quarterback as talented as uh, as Gabbert, you know, drop ten. 
uh, even though they traded up to get him. But still, I mean, this guy, this is the guy that was projected to go, you know, top three. Um, and they essentially take care of the, the franchise quarterback problem a year earlier. Um, that said, I think the guy that they have ahead of him is, you know, Gerard had, you know, apart from the 15 interceptions that he threw, which, you know, doesn't seem like a lot, but it is just in that offense because of how, how, uh, how run oriented it is. Um, you know, when he's, when he plays well, he can be, he can be a really, really good, you know, he's not, maybe not top tier, but, you know, definitely probably in that, that 1A, 1AA level, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of like premier quarterbacks. But, I mean, the big question mark for them, I guess, is their, uh, is their receiver core. But I think they have enough, like, young guys there and, and Mike Thomas and Cecil Shorts, especially this, like, uh, this rookie out of, uh, Mount Union who looks like he could be, uh, the, the second coming of, uh, of Pierre Garçon, uh, just from what I saw in camp. Um, you know, it's, they have some unproven guys there, but when you think about what the, who the Jags are offensively, what their identity is, is just like a, a grinded out, uh, run game that kind of features its tight ends more than anybody. You know, anything that they get from their wide receivers who are probably going to be roaming free in the secondary considering how other teams have to, you know, play, play their run game is, is really a bonus. So I think they could be a lot better than, than people think. Does Mercedes Lewis jump out when you're when you're there at camp? Does he does he stick out as one of the really top tight ends in the league? He did, well, I think not only at camp, but just when you watch him play. I mean, there are a lot of guys who are great, you know, receiving tight ends in this league. But I mean, he's one of the guys, one of the few guys who, you know, who you can keep in for three, four downs, and you know he is just gonna he's gonna level you know, the defender in front of him in terms of blocking in the run game. And this guy is just like, I mean, he's definitely, he's like having another, having another guard out there in terms of just how hard he, how hard he mows people down in the run game. That's interesting. So speaking of the run game, it seems like in fantasy circles, people are really, this isn't a fantasy question, but it, it stems from fantasy that people are so scared about MJD because of what's perceived as just really bad knees. And it, did did you get any sense or any reason to believe that MJD wouldn't be what MJD has been the last few years to that offense? I don't think so. I mean, they're definitely planning around him carrying the load again this year. Um, you know, what's what kind of jumped out to me was when he was talking a little bit about that knee recovery process and how, you know, he basically had surgery and wasn't doing a whole lot of running for seven months. You know, it was pretty much limited to, to treadmill running for, uh, you know, a few weeks up until camp started and has been practicing, you know, sparingly. But, you know, the bursts of the flashes that I did see, you know, he seemed like the same old guy. And there's no reason to think that uh, that the Jaguars will feature him any, any less than they did in the past. But that said, they do have some nice some nice running back depth there that if uh if he uh if they want to uh you know kind of uh you know save on his wear and tear a little bit and uh or if he or if he uh or if he gets injured is that and it can't go at all that they've got some guys behind him that could they can essentially do the same thing when i was checking out your postcard I, I, and 
on the subject of Maurice Jones Jew, you mentioned that he's kind of done talking about the whole Jay Cutler and the Twitter thing. Does, does that yeah. bother him a lot, do you think? Do you get the sense that he's really – because we always saw him, Maurice Jones Jew, before that as like a really fun guy. He had a great reputation. His time on the NFL Network, he's always – you know, he's, he seem, comes off as just a really cool, fun guy. Is he kind of bothered right. that he let this, that tweet, like, does he, I don't, I don't know if I want to say does he regret it, but do you get the sense that it really kind of weighs on him a bit? Well, he definitely doesn't regret it. His thing is just like, you know, Twitter is supposed to be this open forum and, you know, just kind of a, a, a digital, uh, a digital town hall. Uh, for, uh, you know, for everybody. Um, and he kind of said something that he thought, and he's getting creamed for it. So he's like, you know, I just can't, you know, he's it, just kind of like living in this world, living in kind of like a sports media cycle that kind of wants guys to, to have an opinion uh, as long as they don't have the, the wrong opinion. He, he just feels like a little bit trapped. That uh, you know you can't you can't express yourself without having uh, you know without being uh, piled on or criticized in, in some sort of way. So he, he kind of you know he's frustrated about that, and then just frustrated with the fact that people just keep bringing it up. Um, but but what he really should be frustrated with is like how it's like why people feel the need to uh, to kind of uh, I guess I don't know about like justify Jay Cutler, but but kind of, uh, you know, uh, stick up for Jay Cutler and, like, kind of paint him to be as not a bad a guy as people think he is. Right. Jay Cutler so, like, has turned into, like, a, a martyr. I don't know what it, is, what it is about him, but that, yeah, I feel like there have been, oh, there are a lot of quarterbacks who have been, you know, kind of similarly, you know, harassable and, and, uh, and, and moody and cantankerous, and, and we just kind of write them off as that. But, but for some reason, we're just like, well, you know, Jay is, the, Jay is all of these things, but he's really not that bad. And I feel like there's a little bit of that going on with, with, uh, with this tweet. You, one last thing about the Jags, and we'll move on to uh, Houston. But the, you mentioned a little bit about Rasheen Mathis and how this is his year to really need to step up. And whenever I think of Rasheen Mathis, I think of me arguing with my buddy who likes the Jags about how he could never handle Marvin Harrison. It's like he was always <laughs> this this guy who was uh, the best corner in the league until he lined up against the best wide receiver in the league, and then he got toasted right. all the time. And you know, here we are a few years later, where is he in his career? And you mentioned this is a really make-or-break year for him. Uh, do you, Would you guess that he'll make, or will you guess that he'll break? Like, what was your overall impression of his play? I think that he'll make. I mean, the impression that I got from the coaching staff and uh, and from Gene Smith, the general manager, was just that, uh, that, he, they, that that position, like, he was just really – Overstressed because he had, there were so many young guys around him in the secondary, especially their, their safeties. I think the guy, one of the guys that was their starter last year, has essentially been bumped to third string because that's now you know they they brought in all these guys, especially uh, especially Juan Landry, who's you know who was great, you know who who's great by himself, but you know kind of in the shadow of of Ed Reed. Um, that I feel like the the cornerbacks now won't have won't be as tested as much as they were in the past, and that that'll only work well for him. And plus, he was coming off he had a few injuries the past couple of years, and then he also admitted to me that uh, you know they kind of went they kind of changed the style of 
of coverage that they played. You know, he felt like he excelled in more of a in more of a zone type of a system, and they went from that to a man to man. And he said that he was kind of stubborn in in making that transition. They feel like it didn't really suit his game, and that and that obviously showed up in his game when he was getting you know torched all the time. But uh, but he he feels like he's learned from that, and uh, and is ready and healthy and and uh, and and in a position to to focus a little bit better now. So I got the chance to see Houston firsthand the other night. They were on the NFL Network. The whole country got a chance to see them, and they look very good. And they're always yeah. this—they're always this team that, for, at least for the last few seasons, that we're waiting to really take the next step to maybe right. unseat Indianapolis, or at the very least, be there as a wild card. And they haven't been able to quite do that. Is there anything this year that can help them? make that next step? Like, was it just something that they needed to fail to succeed and now they're ready? Or where, where does this franchise stand? Because they've been stuck kind of in this middle ground between good and bad for the last few seasons. Yeah, I think they just needed a defense. Uh, you know, they've had, they've had you know, a handful of, of, of good players in good spots. Like, you know, Dante Robinson for a long time was the best corner they had. Um, you know, Mario Williams, obviously, you know, being a, a disruptive force on the line. Uh, D'Amico Ryans, uh, Amobi Okoye, who they got rid of uh, because they wanted to, to go a little bit bigger at that nose uh, for their 3-4 scheme. But I think now, you know, there's definitely kind of a passivity to the way that they, they schemed it. Um, and that is completely gone under under Wade Phillips, and I think that bringing in a guy, not only just changing a scheme, but bringing in a guy like that, who, who like, you know, he's been doing it for 35 years and knows how to teach it, and knows how to teach it in a short period of time, uh, that you already see the difference. I mean, like, uh, even before even before the Saints preseason game, I'm watching it in practice, and, you know, guys are, they're just like, so much more active than than I can remember them ever ever being in the in the two previous visits that I made there, and I think that really showed up in the um, in the in the Saints game. Even though you know Mario Williams is still kind of adapting to that, you know, uh, Mark, Demarcus Ware role as a as a rushing as a as a rushing outside backer. Uh, there are other guys where you know they they were all over the place. Um, and I think that's the difference, that, that kind of aggression, um, that, uh, that want to, um, and, uh, and the guys are just, you know, jazzed about it because they say, you know, that there's so much kind of flexibility in Wade's scheme that, you know, there's basically like a package in there for everybody. So it's not just geared toward, you know, funneling all of the playmaking to one position. Like, everybody in that defense is a very equal opportunity defense. Um, so there's that, and then there's also the fact that, you know, they, they get much stronger in the secondary, which has always been a, a, a trouble spot for them by adding, you know, Jonathan Joseph, who was a great, you know, corner in Cincinnati, even though he didn't get Pro Bowl recognition because there are just so many good ones in the AFC. And then, uh, and then bringing Daniel Manning uh, as another safety, who was great with the Bears, who played in a passive uh, Tampa 2 scheme and was a huge playmaker out there and, you know, should only be even that much better in a scheme that's that's basically designed for him to be more active. And he's happier that he won't have to play in the box as much as he did in Chicago. So he's basically, you know, playing center field. I mean, I think that team, 
you know, if that defense continues to do what it's been doing in uh, in camp, you know, it's only gonna it's only gonna enhance that offense. We kind of lucked into a a second dimension in uh, in uh, in Arian Foster. Now they have a you know like a formidable ground game to go with the pass. So I think that you know if you know especially if the Colts struggle, you know we don't still have no idea kind of what's going on with Manning. I mean, I think that they could easily uh, they could easily you know run away with that division. Um, you know, and they they certainly think that they can. I mean, and and it seems like the other teams do too. Because I mean, just kind of taking an informal survey of of that locker room, of the Texans locker room and the other locker rooms. You know, they everybody kind of seems to believe that in terms of top to bottom talent, that the Texans are are leading the pack right now. So I'd be surprised if they uh, if they stumbled again, you know, if they didn't if they didn't get to the playoffs this year. We had a chance to talk to Matt Crossman from the Sporting News a few weeks ago, and he did a big cover story on Arian Foster. Have you ever met, I'm assuming you met him, I guess that's a big mm-hmm. assumption, but have, have you ever met a more interesting NFL player? I mean, he, he almost kind of reminds me of, in terms of personality, of like T- what we thought of Tiki Barber before all of a sudden Tiki Barber became this weird guy like you know like quoting Shakespeare like that kind of thing almost like this unbelievably smart NFL running back who questions everything and is almost brilliant have you met a guy quite like him well I would say it's funny you bring up Tiki Barber I would say the the difference between him and Tiki Barber is like whenever Tiki would bring up Shakespeare it always seemed forced it was always like a reminder Ah. that you know that I, you know, I'm I am smarter than you, and I can prove it, kind of deal. Uh-huh. And with Arian, it's just like, you know, it's just it's just kind of the way his his logic pattern works. That uh, you know, we can be talking about a hamstring injury, and he'll bring up like chi and yoga, and uh, you know, <laughs> you know, reincarnation, and like all of these, just kind of like, uh, you know these, uh, I guess, like, Buddhist principles. Um, and uh, and it's just like, where, you know, where do you come from? Like, who, who made you? <laughs> right. um, you know, I can remember, like, last last year was the first time that I, I actually got to meet him. He was scanning with Texans, and, and, you know, I'm like, you know, in their media workroom inside Reliant, and he comes in, and he's got, like, this iPad, you know, it was back when, you know, the iPad was, you know, had, had just come out and he's very, very much uh, excited about this new toy. And he's showing me like all of these books that he's reading on his, uh, in his, uh, like Kindle app library and what, and he's just like very interested in, uh, you know, just because he's very intellectually curious in a way that doesn't seem as forced as, as Tiki. Um, but I also just kind of like, being in a room with a guy who will kind of challenge conventional wisdom because, you know, I, I kind of, this year I shared him with uh, Paul Kaharski of, uh, of ESPN.com and, you know, where they're talking about just kind of his situation and trying to draw the, the obvious analogy to, uh, to Chris Johnson, you know, one guy holding out, another guy in camp, and he's just like, we're not the same guy, you know, like I was on, you know, last year when I was, or two years ago when I was on the practice squad, you know, nobody cared how much money I made. And now all of a sudden I leave the league in rushing and people think I should be pissed off about how much, uh, how much the Texans aren't paying me. But it's like, you know, I live well, my wife lives well, my kid, my daughter lives well. Like I have no complaints <laughs> and it's just like very, you know, 
you know, not the kind of, uh, it's a refreshing kind of a philosophical outlook on life that you don't, you don't often get from people in his position. But no, I love, I love talking to him. He's always, he's never not been interesting. So I always look forward to, uh, sitting down with him. The sportscasters are here with Andrew Lawrence from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at SI underscore Drew Lawrence. Last team, only got a couple of minutes for him, but you did also spend a little bit of time inside and see. So it was pretty interesting. You got to see Blaine Gabbert in Jacksonville, and you got to see Jay Locker in Tennessee. Who, who's closer? To me, Blaine was. Um, and I think that's just more of a function of, of, uh, of Gerard, you know, missing time early in camp with the, with a lower back injury and getting to take more reps with the first team, um, than, than, than in Tennessee where they actually brought in a veteran guy to, to lead that offense and, uh, in, in Hasselbeck, but, um, but I, I don't know. I just, I mean, I liked what I saw or what I've seen of, uh, of Jake uh, and it's kind of funny because I was talking to, to Matt about it and he was like, you know, talking about how he felt that, uh, he thought that this would happen, that he would have, end up mentoring Jake in, uh, in Seattle and mm. how he kind of made, uh, made, oh, you know, overtures there, um, to, uh, to start kind of building that relationship when he was still in college, just because he assumed, you know, even though, you know, he and the Seahawks were far apart on contract terms, and they'd eventually settle into something, and that they would bring him in as the, the obvious, like, kind of local guy to uh, to be uh, to be the guy in, in the future. So he's like, oh, well, you know, let me let me get a head start on it. But the funny thing was, he's like, you know, I don't, you know, I knew I know him, I knew him, but I didn't like know him. Like, I knew him in the way that you know, kind of. Uh, famous people know each other when they kind of see each other in social situations. You know, he's like, I know, I know him in the way that I know Sue Bird, which I, which, which I thought was hilarious because it's like, you know, <laughs> an, an analogy is that only works in Seattle where the WNBA franchise is like huge. Relevant, right. Um, <laughs> but he's like, uh, you know, uh, you know, we worked out together at University of Washington during lockout and became pretty close. And you know, when I ended up not, you know, signing with uh, with Seattle, I was like, oh well, there goes that. And then they end up drafting him, and it's like, oh well, here we are. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, I liked I liked what I saw out of out of Jake. I think that he, you know, he's still not, you know, he's not the pocket passer that the Gabbard is, but. Uh, but on the run, um, you know, rolling out, doing a lot of bootleg stuff, uh, he's, you know, he's as, uh, he's as good as it gets. Um, and it's funny because Matt was saying that there are a lot of plays in the offense like that, and he just knows that, you know, in- intuitively, he's like, oh, yeah, that's, that, one's, that one's not mine because there's no way that I could do. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff, uh, you know, on, on the run stuff that, uh, that I just can't do anymore that's perfect for him. So, um but, you know, I found in that preseason game, uh, we played the Rams on Friday. That sounds like right, yeah. he, you know, he had, he had some pretty good moments there, and uh, um, it looked better in the pocket to me. Um, but, but I think, you know, he's, he's kind of in a good situation where he gets to sit back and learn, um, and especially, like, uh, learn from a guy who came, you know, because they were basically adapting to an offense that is uh, more of a New York Giants-style offense. 
uh, under Chris Palmer, and he was saying that, uh, Hasselbeck was saying of Locker that, you know, the both of them came from West Coast systems, so they're kind of, you know, each other's study buddies in terms of, you know, taking a play or a concept and trying to work it back to what it would be in the West Coast to kind of figure out what they should be doing in this new system. So it's been helpful in that way. Um, and whereas Gamberton, a situation where the guy ahead of him, uh, you know, has has not been the most consistent uh, since '09, um, or save for '09, I should say, and uh, and has an has a has an injury history that gives you you know some 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 concern there. Um, it did that could put, that could, uh, eventually put him in a position to start. So. Um, I don't know. I think uh I think overall, uh who will become the better pro that's that's tough to say, but but I definitely think Gabbert looks the better of the two right now. He's got the early edge. Last thing, do you think this team can compete if Chris Johnson doesn't show up? I do. I actually like Javon Ringer a lot. I think that, you know, if he played on, you know, the Buccaneers or uh Gosh, what's another team? Uh, the Bengals, not the Bengals. The uh, the Browns. You know, he could probably be their featured tailback. Um, you know, not. Uh, but the thing is, is like a fifteen yard gain for him or a ten yard gain for him. You know, is like a thirty yard or a touchdown run for Chris Johnson. So there's definitely like a difference in in the I guess home run hitting ability of that offense. But they can definitely, you know, if they want to be a team that uh, wins, you know, by scoring only 21 or 24 points, then he can, he's definitely a kind of guy that will that can take 25 to 30 carries a game and, uh, and uh, you know, help them lead the clock on offense and just give that defense a chance to, to, keep, them, to keep them in the game or to keep them ahead in the game. But... You know, if they have to play from behind, I, you know, they're much better. They'd be in a much better position to do that with a guy like Chris Johnson in the backfield. So you didn't see Indy, but you did see the other three teams, and probably Indy is the team that you would need to see the least to get a feel of. How do you think this division ends up ultimately finishing? Do you think this is the year that Houston makes the jump, or do you think this is still Indianapolis's division to lose? That's the thing about Peyton. If you want to wait. To that first game, just to see how he looks. Right, if he's is. in that first game, first of all, because I mean, you can't draw any kind of conclusions from the way that offense played. Um, it is playing in any of their preseason games. I mean, that, that talking to, to Bill Polley, and it's clear that you know the that like that team is is basically built to go as far as Peyton, a healthy Peyton Manning will take them. I mean, you know, you look at their quarterback depth and they're just, they basically conceded that, you know, by saying, if he's not hurt, if he's hurt, we're a completely different team anyway, so why why invest the money in in an insurance policy? So, um, you know, you can't, like, I can't make a call on India until I've seen until I've seen he until I see him in there, right. and then to see what he can do in there. Uh, but even that, you know, say he's in there week one, you know, he probably doesn't hit his stride until week three or week four. And you know, if they put together, 
you know, if they put together like, you know, if they win three, three straight, three out of four, then you're thinking, okay, this is nine and seven, ten and six team. They could probably, if they don't win the division, they'll probably be a wild card. And by the time they get in the playoff, they're probably hitting their stride. So, um, it'll, it, I mean, let's, let's, I would love to know more about, uh, you know, kind of where Peyton Manning is in his recovery. But then that's, that's the great, if I knew that, then, uh, you'd be you know, rich. But no, listening to you say that, it almost reminds me of that. It almost seems like they're in the position that Pittsburgh was in last year where it's like they're going to have to try to weather those first four games with or without Manning because he's going to need that time to to hit his stride, like you said, anyway. But it's the Sportscasters uh, with Andrew Lawrence from SI.com. You can find him on Twitter. He's at... SI underscore Drew Lawrence. I say very underrated. Thank you very, very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, buddy. Hey, no problem. Sportscasters are back here with one last segment. I have to thank our guests here on episode number 37, Andrew Lawrence, Stuart Mandel, Don Banks. Thank you very much for your time. You know, Don, this time of the year, the end of August, these guys aren't just sitting around sipping Mai Tais waiting for us to call. (laughs) You know, these are busy guys who are working really hard to get ready for the season as much as we are and our listeners. So I can't state enough how much I appreciate Mr. Banks, Mr. Mandel, and Mr. Lawrence making time for us today. We really appreciate that. Absolutely. also want to remind everyone to check out episode number 38, which is going to be released at the same time as this one. We'll probably pretend like they're going to be released a day apart, but right. they'll go up at the same time. Yep. And you'll have a chance to listen to an interview that we did with Michael Fabiano from the NFL Network. You'll be able to uh, listen to our Five on Fantasy segment with its new introduction <laughs> yeah very fantasy centric show and also we have ken fangs from fangbites.com to talk a little sports media on that episode and also this week we are gonna let, let you hear athlete spotlight number four the first three we did the first one was with deuce McAllister. second one was with carter camper third one was with reggie smith first one fourth one is with anthony day of the yale bulldogs ice hockey team as he Gets ready to start the NCAA hockey season. And I think, you know, it's not something usually covered by a mainstream podcast, but we will find our way to talk a little bit of college hockey now and again as the season goes on. Now, usually these shows end with pick four, Don and I incorrectly picking games for the week. (laughs) Uh, But instead, we're going to make some other predictions to end this show. Since it's been such a football-centric show, and since the totals came out this week, I really wanted to pick some teams over under win totals for the year. I said off the top that this was something that Mike and the Mad Dog used to do every year when they were together, and I know both still do it on their own shows individually. And that's just pick what you think. Vegas sets a number. Usually it's somewhere between 5.5 on the low side to 10.5 on the high side. Your team gets a number somewhere in there, and you have to decide if you're going to think they're going to go over or under that in wins. Don and I are each going to give you four. And since we talked 
college football today with Stuart Mandel. We're going to give our picks for the national championship game. We used, uh, for reference, we used Bodog's numbers as of today. So the first one that stood out to me was Cincinnati, was, was at five and a half. I would have a hard time picking two games on their – they're not going to be favored in one game on their schedule this year. And if they are, it would be maybe Buffalo, I believe, plays them. But to pick them for six wins, there's, I, there's no way. There's, I just don't see it. There wasn't a single number that jumped out at me on the screen more than that one, Don. When I seen the Bengals were at five and a half, I wanted to get my wallet out, <laughs> to be honest, because there is no way that that team is winning six games this year. Yeah, There's Andy, no way. Andy Dalton might have a nice future, but it sounds like he just doesn't get it yet, and he's he's being forced into that role kind of, and there's no news about them trying to reconcile with Carson Palmer or anything like that. Even if they had Palmer, do, do you up? They still might not be a safe bet for six wins with Palmer. And yeah, that's, that's an ugly total for them. And you know, it's funny. I, I sent out a tweet the other night, said something like, is it just me or the Bengals looking at two and 14? And a guy named Eric Hornick, who follows us on Twitter, who's actually the statistician for the New York Islanders home telecasts, <laughs> He also does some stuff on NHL.com. He wrote back to me and said, who are they going to beat? Right. And, you know, you look over that schedule, and I don't know, I'm not sure. Maybe they'll split with Cleveland. Maybe. Maybe. But we talked earlier about how Cleveland looks improved and McCoy looks good. That If I had disposable income to just throw at Vegas, that would be the, That'd be the pick. clear number one. Yep. The second one that stood out to me a little bit is Jacksonville. Uh their number is six and a half, which meaning they'd have to go seven and nine. I took the under again. I don't see it. Uh, MJD is a little bit banged up. I mean, in a perfect world, even if he stays healthy, there's not a lot of weapons around him. You got you're relying on guys like Mike Thomas, uh, David Garrard. No home field advantage at all because nobody goes to the games. I I just don't in that division too. Uh, Houston's supposed to be improved. Indies always Indies unless Peyton is out for an extended period of time. Six and a half, seven wins is a lot to ask out of them. Yeah, you know, we talked a little bit about the Jaguars earlier with Andrew Lawrence, and although he, I think, was being polite and being as optimistic as possible, I think even if you asked him, he would agree. And my number my second one, again, we, we do this separately, but <laughs> sometimes we think Some of them like, just stand out, I guess. And I also had the Jaguars under six and a half, and I would be shocked if I didn't get that one right because I think there's no way the Jaguars are winning seven games. I think that's just too much. I think they might win five. They might win six, maybe, but they're not winning seven. It's just not going to happen. The third team I picked was Washington. Their number is six and a half. I again took the under. I don't. I just don't see it. Uh, they have a revolving door at running back. It seems like a somewhat aging defense. The second coming of Chris Wenke at quarterback. <laughs> yeah, I. There's not not a lot of talent in that division. Is brutal. Again, I mean, if they. They could easily not win a game in their division, and then they've got to win seven out of ten games. There's no way. That's a good one. I like that one. I didn't pick it, but I agree. 
my third under is the Bills. You probably didn't have the heart to do it. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's a bad thing, though, because the more I think about what the Bills have done in the last 16 months, the more and more I like it. And I think if, they, if the fans and the city can weather one more season under five and a half, which is what I pick, I think that the player they get coupled with in next year's draft, which will be good, coupled with the player that they already got in Darius and the moves that they're making, if maybe they spend a little bit of money, they can be a playoff team next year. So even though I picked them to be under five and a half, the more and more I think about it, this is a team that's headed in the right direction. And I think of all three that I've, all four of these picks that I make, this is the one that I'd be least surprised to lose because I do think that they're a lot better than what was it, number 31, that they were on the power rankings, the power rankings for ESPN, for ESPN right. that they were given. They're much better than that. Yeah, I'm, I hope you're right, honestly, because the Bills have been a team forever that can't decide if they're going to go for it or if they're going to be bad, and they're just kind of always in the middle, so that's where they kind of have stayed for so long is just in the middle. And I hope you're right. Like I said, or like you said, Darius looks great in the preseason, so if that carries over, would be nice. And uh, at least they took one step in the right direction. They managed to piss Fred Jackson off, which isn't that cool, but he is a 30-year-old running back, so he's not the future. My last one, so I'm not totally a negative Nelly over here, is I took Kansas City over 7.5. That seems very low for a team that won a division last year. I know maybe it was the perfect storm of events, easy schedule, whatever, but all they have to do is go 8-8. Eight and eight. I'm, not a Matt, uh, I'm not a Matt Castle guy. But I love their running back. I love Charles. Their defense isn't bad. They've got Dwayne Bowe, who I also don't love, but he's, he's effective. I think they can win eight games. I also didn't want to be a completely negative Nelly, so I looked for an over. And the one I liked a lot was the Lions. Lions are a team that really seem to be emerging. If Matthew Stafford can stay upright, I don't think it's going to be that hard for them to go 8-8. Eight and eight. And that's all they need to do for me to win this one. It's over 7.5. So I guess I'm taking a little bit of a chance that Matt Stafford's going to do something he's never done, and that's start and end an NFL season. I don't believe they can get to eight without Stafford, but I think they can easily do it with him. That's not a good division there either. I mean, no. Green, Green, it's very top-heavy with Green yeah, Bay. Green Bay's great. They're going to lose both those games probably. Like you said, the Bears somehow with smoke and mirrors went to the championship game last year, and the Vikings could be awful this year. So they could easily win four of their six division games and then they only got to win you eight or four out of the other 10 and you know i don't remember what the record was last year it was they're probably close to this they're probably under seven and a half but probably close and they should have won game one against chicago that was that game with the weird calvin johnson stood up with right the ball right thing yep. you know so they could have been even better than they were and uh it's improving so yeah, going back real quick to Kansas City, uh, Oakland somehow managed to go 6-0 and in the division last year, and that's a total anomaly. So Kansas City can – I think they could easily go 5-1 and in that division. Then they just have to find three wins over the next 10 games. So if I had – like I said, if I had a lot of disposable income, some of these stand out, especially the Cincinnati one. All right, the last thing we're going to do today is we're going to pick – a few weeks ago, we picked our way-too-early – Super Bowl championship game. I don't think we picked winners. I know I picked the Saints versus the Patriots. Do you remember what you picked on? 
I picked, I didn't really prepare for it, but I think maybe Green Bay, Baltimore. You picked Atlanta. Atlanta, Baltimore, yeah, maybe. Two yeah. bird teams. Yeah, two bird teams. <laughs> That's an inside joke. Uh, for my BCS National Championship game, I'm going to pick Oklahoma versus Alabama. I thought long and hard about Alabama, LSU, but I think LSU, they've just given themselves too hard of a road to get there. So I'm going to pick Alabama versus Oklahoma. And based on track record, the SEC winning the last six national championship game, OU struggling in BCS games, I'm going to pick Alabama to win the national championship. I picked Oklahoma at Oregon. Um, and because it seems like every time, like my head tells me to take Oklahoma in this, obviously it's not like any stretch of the imagination. They're everyone's preseason number one. But every time it seems like I sit down to watch an Oklahoma games, I must, I must be a jinx for them because they seem to lose every time I watch them. So if they were in a national championship game, obviously I'd be watching it. Uh, so I took Oregon to win. Very interesting. So you pick... Don Bowley selects an SEC team to not even be in the championship game and for the first time in six years not win it. And you know what? That'd be, that'd be great. <laughs> It'd be great to have the SEC kind of get knocked down a peg. But uh, that's it for today's show. I want to remind everyone to check us up on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash the sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Or you can find Don at Don Like Sports or myself at Diversity23. You can also find us, our blog, the Blogcasters, at thesportscasters.blogspot.com. You can email us anytime. You want to tell us you're idiots, tell us we're smart, whatever you want to do, email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. And all that information can be found on our website, which we probably will be working on in the near future to kind of just look a little bit better and kind of organize what's getting to be a lot of podcasts a little bit better. And uh, that's at sports-casters.com. And again, I want to mention next week, Kenny Albert on the show. It's awesome. Can't wait. We'll see you then. Cue the hip. We're out. Bye. All right.